One of my most vivid memories as a young teenager involves a time when my parents left uh, us alone for a while, left me in charge of my two younger brothers. Um, and I think it might have been the first time they did that. I'm not sure. I was probably like 12 or 13, but the memory is kind of burned in my head. Uh, the memory involves a really nice ceramic lamp that used to sit on an end table by the couch. And I don't remember exactly who threw the pillow, um, but now that I look back on it and the, 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 things are unclouding, and it's like 95% that I'm the one that threw the pillow. I'm pretty sure it was me. What I remember more vividly, though, is the almost slow motion fall of the lamp from its perch on that end table to the hardwood floor below, followed by the sound. You know the sound, right? The sound of sin and judgment, you know. <laughs> And that's um, kind of what happened. Uh, <laughs> but there's, there's, there's something about that moment, isn't there, when something breaks, that crashing sound, the, the, the sound of broken glass, the sound of whatever it is, and you realize that something has changed, something has broken. And um, even though that night we, we did try to put some things back together again, you know, glue, et cetera, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, but you know the sound, you know the feeling when something's broken. We're going to look this morning at a scripture passage in which a lot of things get broken, things that are much more valuable than a ceramic lamp. And in fact, you and I are among the things that got broken in the Bible passage we're going to look at this morning. And in addition to kind of seeing that, we're also going to ask, is there any way that these things can be put back together again? Is there any way that this brokenness can be restored? Is there any way that we can possibly be fixed? Uh, so turn to Genesis chapter 3, which is where it all kind of got started. Last week we read the account of Satan's temptation of Eve through the serpent, and then the couple's fall into disobedience. And we stopped about halfway through the chapter, but this week we're going to look at some of the aftermath of that. So let's pick it up in the middle of where we were last week in verse 6. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, 
and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, before we look at how God deals with the serpent and then the woman and then the man, let's make sure we don't miss the very first consequence of the couple's sin. Starts in verse 7, where it says that they realized their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. I don't know how many of you have ever had that very common dream of, um, some of you have, I already know, I haven't even said what it is yet, of being found naked in a public place. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands right now. Um, some of the people that have had that dream wouldn't raise their hands anyway, I can tell just by default. But uh, the psychologist will doubtless tell you that this dream comes from a fear of having something in your life exposed. Okay, maybe not your body, but your past or your inadequacies or your secrets, maybe your hidden sins. And uh, I can't help but think they're, they're probably right. There's probably something to that. Adam and Eve's sense of shame here is certainly connected to their physical nakedness. We get that. But obviously there's more to it. They are now walking around with a horrible secret. Now we don't know. I've often thought, did the fruit that they ate have like pits in it? You know, like a peach or something? And so what did they do with the pits? Did they hide it? Did they throw it away? Did they throw it in the river? You know, did they try to hide from God and try to cover up what they'd done? Maybe they thought they would do that, but it didn't last very long because even before that terrible moment when they hear the voice of God calling out, they already know that something's not right. Their eyes, it says, were opened, but not in a good way. Not in a good way. Adam and Eve had gotten what the serpent said they would get. They had indeed gained the knowledge of good and evil. God confirms that later in the chapter. We read that. Had they become more like God? Well, yeah, they had, in the sense that now they had one more thing in common with God, namely the knowledge of good and evil. But there's a very tragic difference between God's knowledge of good and evil and our knowledge of good and evil and Adam and Eve's knowledge of good and evil. You see, God, God has no sin. God is absolutely pure and perfect and holy, and so God has a holy and pure and perfect knowledge of good and evil because he's looking at the evil from the outside, He's not enveloped in it. He's able to be objective about it and see it. Whereas and Eve were not looking at evil from a much different lens because they were now trapped on the inside of the evil. And in fact, the evil was now inside of them. That's the angle they had. That's what their knowledge of good and evil was about. They were now filled with evil. They were now broken. They were broken. And they felt it. 
They felt it right away. They felt the wrongness. They felt the contamination inside of themselves. And they, they knew they could no longer walk around naked and unashamed before God and before one another. Instead, they felt exposed. They felt vulnerable. They felt uncovered. They felt unclean. We talked several months ago about the emotion of shame. The, the, the feeling of being diminished or downgraded or even defiled in the eyes of someone whose opinion matters to you. And, and shame is a powerful emotion. And in their case, in Adam and Eve's case, it was a very accurate an appropriate emotion. They did have something to be ashamed of. And they responded by doing the only thing they could think to do. They went and they, they grabbed some fig leaves and they tried to weave them together to at least find some way to cover up their physical nakedness if they could. And maybe this was somewhat effective on the surface, but ultimately it didn't really do the job for them. They were still, they knew it, they were still unable to stand in the presence of a holy God. And so they hid they hid. This is where I think you and I can immediately relate to Adam and Eve in this situation because we are very good at hiding in response to our sin and shame. We all do it. We all do it. We say to ourselves, no one needs to know about, about, about our selfish and prideful actions. No one needs to know about our impure thoughts and fantasies. No one needs to know about our hatred and resentment and unforgiveness toward other people. No one needs to know about our, our compulsive, unhealthy addictions. No one needs to know about our, our cowardice in the face of, of difficult and uncomfortable situations. This is all pretty shameful stuff. We need to kind of keep it out of the spotlight. And in fact, not only should nobody else ever see this stuff, but we don't really like looking at it ourselves, so we take it and we jam it way down deep inside where we'll never have to think about it. We kind of lose it in the busyness and in the activity of life. And we hope that no one else discovers it, including God. Now, if we're honest, we, we know intellectually, because we know who God is, we know that God knows everything, and so we know that it's really ridiculous to think we can hide anything from God. He sees everything. But still, for some reason, we don't deal honest, honestly with our brokenness in His presence. We won't take the risk to do that because our shame is that powerful. The fear of being exposed can paralyze us. And it paralyzes a lot of us. So we live with the sin and the dysfunction just sitting there, just kind of festering inside of us. And in the event that we do get kind of dragged out into the light and being called to account for something that we've done, there's always one more place to hide, isn't there? Behind somebody else. Eve gives a reason here that's become kind of standard, right? Even cliche. What did she say? The devil made me do it. And there's no indication she knew that this was Satan or even knew who Satan was, but we do, and, and we know that he's a pretty convenient excuse, isn't he? Adam shows the other common ploy, blame another person, in this case his wife. And even indirectly, as we talked about last week, blame God for giving him the wife and allowing him to end up in the situation in the first place. And I know, yes, it's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing because, yes, if you're thinking about it in your own life, it's true. Satan is influencing our decisions. The devil's real. His influence is real. And yes, other people certainly play a part in our disobedience. That's real too. But there's something inside of us that wants that to be the whole reason, right? It wasn't us. And maybe 50% the world, 50% 
the devil, or 50%, you know, my friend, and 50% the world, or whatever, but it's, it's not really, we don't take responsibility for our own actions and choices. Think about it. How many arguments do you have with the people in your life? How many arguments do you have with your spouse? How many arguments do you have if you ever argue with your coworkers? I know some of you probably do. How many disagreements and arguments do you have with your classmates at school where the main topic of the argument eventually turns out to be whose fault is it? I mean, it might start with, with something, but it usually ends up being whose responsibility is this? Whose fault is this? And this is an argument that you kind of, you go to great lengths because you just have to win this one. You know why we have to win that argument? Because our pride and our ego and our self-image is riding on it. It can't be our fault. It has to be somebody else's fault. If you can't identify another individual to blame, that doesn't work. You can always go to, like, society, right? Or maybe your parents. There's always a lot of baggage from them, right? So we can, we can blame them. That might work. And maybe there's some truth to some of these things, but ultimately, wherever you point the finger, you've still got those three pesky fingers pointing back at you, don't you? Let me ask you something. What's your favorite way to hide? Think about it for a second. How do you hide? When it comes to covering up your sin and shame, what is your favorite brand of fig leaf? You have an assortment of options, right? Probably even a few we haven't mentioned. Most of us have a pretty elaborate fig leaf wardrobe, you know, we've built up over the years to hide our sin. Why are we afraid to face people, afraid to face the truth about the ugliness within ourselves, afraid that people will find out about us, that we'll be exposed, that they'll find out that we're not the well-adjusted and together and godly person that, that we think that they think that we are? Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to hide our nakedness? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to hide our shame? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to hide our sin and our weakness in our inadequacies. Wouldn't it be great if somebody set us free from that, that prison? Well, let me leave you in suspense. And let's look at God's answer here to, to all of this hiding and giving of excuses. Because starting in verse 14, it's time for God to start meeting out judgment to the different parties who are involved and announcing what the short-term and long-term consequences are going to be for humanity's rebellion against him. I'm going to skip the part about the serpent today because that will be the topic that Reverend Labyrinth is going to cover with you next week. So he's got, he's got verses 15 and 16, which uh, there's actually a lot more to those two verses than meets the eye, so I'm going to leave that to him so he can do the theology. For now, what I want you to remember is what we've learned recently about the image of God. We, we said um, that many times it's mentioned in Scripture that human beings are created in the image of God. We've said that we're not going like, to make a list of characteristics that correspond to the image of God, but what we've been doing over the last few weeks is, is kind of looking at it from different angles and looking how the image of God is reflected in certain relationships, the relationship that we have with the rest of creation the relationship that we have with one another, and ultimately the relationship that we have with God Himself. And we're going to see that each of those things that correspond to part of the image of God in our lives, each of those things is, gets messed up. Each of those things is affected very much, very profoundly by our fall into sin. Now, this does not mean that we no longer have God's image. We didn't lose the image of God. We still have it. God is very clear about that. Over in um, Genesis chapter 9, after the ark story, God refers to the image of God when he gives the reason why we should take the taking of a human life very seriously. 
Over in, in James, in the New Testament, James says the way we treat each other should be determined in part by realizing that we're made in the image of God. So it's still there. The image of God is not lost in us, but it's warped. It's been warped badly by sin. Look down at verses 17 to 19, and we'll do this one quickly, but you'll see what this means for our relationship with the rest of creation. No longer are we going to be able to just pick fruit off the tree to our heart's content. Now, now we're consigned to hard labor because the earth is going to stop cooperating with us so nicely, God says. It will still yield its fruit. It will still yield to us, but only with a great struggle. And the earth is also going to produce thorns and thistles. And, and so work is still good. We've talked about that a couple times, how work is a blessing. Work is good. Work is part of the image of God, but, but our work is going to change. Our work is going to take on a more burdensome character. So the earth is kind of against us, at enmity with us, and to that you can, you, can, you can look at some other things that happen in our lives today as a result of this. Think about the rust on your cars. Think about the, the, the mold on your curtains. Think about the, the, the computer chips that suddenly fail while you're about to finish your document and you forgot to save. You can add to that the overall state of nature, which Paul tells us in Romans is groaning as if in the pains of childbirth. So earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, famines, droughts, all of this. Now, some of this may be connected in some way to human behavior being part of its cause, but even, even the stuff that is not caused at all by what we're doing is still caused by us because it's a result of our sin. Our relationship with creation has become estranged because nature itself has been cursed for our sake. Now, we, we haven't lost that, that commission from God. We're still called to rule and to manage creation, but it will no longer be so easily ruled. It's going to require hard work, and sometimes that work is going to prove even to be fruitless and a waste of time because of our sin. Now, can we do some things to kind of lessen the sting of that curse? We can. Should we? Why not? Yeah, I mean, we, we apply weed killer to our fields, right? We invent labor-saving devices. We apply science and technology to the problems of human suffering. We put springs in the foundations of our buildings so that they aren't damaged by earthquakes. We put other homes up on stilts so they can't be damaged by floods. We even take steps now to care for our environment so that it'll last a little bit longer and treat us a little bit nicer. And these are good things but they don't solve the ultimate problem of the brokenness of nature. All they really are is fig leaves. They help. They're kind of a temporary fix, but they don't do the job. They don't do the job. Speaking of hard labor, I'm sure you caught what God said to Eve about childbirth, right? Childbirth, we will see, is extremely important now, obviously, because of the survival of the human race, right? But childbirth is also important. We'll find out later on, uh, maybe even next week, and then when we look at First Timothy and some other places, childbirth is important for our redemption. And childbirth is still going to be a blessing. It's a wonderful blessing when a child comes into the world, but it's going to be a blessing that involves a lot of discomfort for the woman. That's what they call it in the maternity ward, right, Danielle? Yeah, it's discomfort. The rest of us call it pain. But are you experiencing any discomfort? Yes! <laughs> but beyond that, you may have noticed um, in God's words to Eve that our, our interaction
personal relationships themselves are going to be affected by this, by the curse of sin. A few weeks ago, we noted that human beings are made not to be lone rangers, but to live in community, to live with other people, to relate closely to one another, to find each other as a source of help and companionship and to enjoy each other's companies, uh, company. And we said, you know, we're like Legos. One Lego isn't very fun to play with, but if you get a whole lot of them together, they, they take on some meaning. And, and, and we're made to fit together with other people and that the primary way this is expressed initially in creation is by the creation of male and female. And we talked about that a lot. And now we see the primary relationship between the sexes is, of course, the marriage relationship, which is explicitly defined for us back at the end of chapter 2. There's a parenthetical place there where Moses makes a a comment that, that this is why a man should leave his father and mother. There were no fathers and mothers yet, but we learn about marriage right here in the second chapter of the Bible. It's that important. But something's going to happen to our marriages because of the fall. Here at the end of verse 16, we see this beautiful relationship of marriage is going to be affected very much by the fall and by the sinfulness of the man and the woman. God says to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that is a phrase, I will tell you, that has been subject to all kinds of interpretation, all kinds of research and commentary over the ages. But I'm convinced the best way to understand this is surely to compare it. There's only two more places in the Bible where that phrase is used, and one of them is in the very next chapter in a parallel construction, and we need to look there. Cain and Abel have been born by this time, and so God is talking to Cain. Cain is being tempted to kill his brother Abel, and God says to Cain, he says this, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Same construction. In other words, Cain, sin wants to have its way with you, but you must bring it under control. Now, what does this mean for Adam and Eve? How does it map back to them and to us as husbands and wives in general? Well, Eve, Eve, having lost the security, the covering, the protection of her husband's unselfish love, because remember, he just threw her under the bus pretty badly, didn't he? Having lost that protection, having lost that covering, Eve is going to need to respond by trying to extract what she needs from Adam one way or the other. And in doing this, her tendency is going to be to take control of Adam and to try to take control of the relationship. Adam, for his part, will be doing something similar, only he's going to be driven to dominate her, to bring her under submission rather than to love her unconditionally and unselfishly. So instead of a helpmate and a companion, Eve will now be competing with Adam in some ways. And the beautiful dance of husband and wife where where the man provides tender and loving leadership in the context of mutual submission to one another. This beautiful dance is now going to become more of a wrestling match as these two people try to extract from one another what should have been freely and willingly given. And of course, that's going to become the pattern, not just for marriage, but marriage is prototypical of all, of all human relationships in this chapter. All human relationships are affected by this. Rather than help each other, we try to exploit one another. In our sinful and fallen minds, other people become not companions to be connected with and worked alongside of and their company enjoyed. No, other other human beings now become objects to be used. They become obstacles to be overcome, even enemies to be defeated. Now this obviously strains our relationships with each other as individuals, but it also affects us in bigger ways. Because what happens is 
in our fallenness, we begin to assess people as to how useful they are to us and how easy they are to get along with and deal with. And so we hive off into groups with those people that, that are easier to deal with and control and use. And we develop labels for people who are outside of our little circle and we view them with suspicion. This is the source of racism. This is the source of a whole host of other prejudices and fears. It divides us from one another, not just as individuals, but as groups. And so ultimately, when it, when it steps up a notch, it leads to, to big conflicts. It leads to war. It leads to genocide. And while we may not follow this impulse all the way to its extreme, not all of us, but this impulse lives in all of us. In our sinful nature, we are now hardwired for conflict instead of companionship. Control rather than trust. Self-protection rather than love. It's built into us now because we're broken. Now, do we have some fig leaves that we can weave together to help us in our relationship difficulties? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if you go back to before that, we've done our best to relieve the agony of childbirth, right, through epidural injections and other painkillers. Amen, I heard. But we, we do our best to learn good communication skills, right, and conflict resolution skills so we can have better interpersonal relationships. We go to marriage counseling. We go to family counseling. At the international level, we try diplomacy and negotiate compromises. And all these things help a little bit, but have you looked at the world today recently? We know they don't take away the root problem, as these broken relationships between people and between nations and people groups would indicate that we're still very broken inside. We're still very broken in this relationship sense, aren't we? We're messed up. But the most tragic element of the curse is really found in verse 19. And the second part of what God says to Adam, until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Our relationship with God is the source of life itself. And the day that we fell into sin, that relationship was broken at a very deep place for all of us. We see this through the simple fact that the man and the woman here had to be driven from the garden. They couldn't go back there anymore to that place where they had enjoyed this, this perfect intimacy with God. You see, God cannot have an intimate relationship with sin. And that's what we are. Not just in our choices and actions, but sin lives in our very being. You know it. And sin brings death. As a result, we live our lives like goldfish swimming around in a cracked aquarium. You know, the water is slowly leaking out. And sooner or later, we're going to see the results of it. Or if you like, you can think in terms of having swallowed poison and we're waiting for it to take effect. Or maybe we've contracted terminal cancer with no cure available, and, and it's just a matter of time. And these are very ugly images, but they, they capture what death does to us because of sin. And you might think of another expression that's used in, in, in the Bible. If you have a job, you get paid for it, right? You work a certain hours, and you get a certain amount of wages back. It's what's coming to you. It's what you have coming. It's your payment. The Bible says sin has a payment too. Sin has wages, and the wages of sin is death. Because of our sin and because of the resultant separation from the life of God, we are all dying right now. We are all dying from the moment we're born. We're all dying. Now, some of us are closer to the terminal point than the others, but, but we all have the same disease, and it's called mortality. 
And it comes as a direct result of our sin against God. We become separated from God spiritually. And if that separation continues until we become separated from our bodies physically by physical death, then that spiritual separation from God will continue forever. It'll become permanent. Now, is there a fig leaf? Is there something we can cover up death with? Not really. We, we, do, we try. We extend life as much as possible, sometimes by very heroic and expensive means. We move dying people to hospice or palliative care in an effort to make death as dignified as possible and in order to establish kind of a distance between us and death. When people do die, we put flowers around the casket, we play soothing music, we share comforting words with one another. This is good. This is kind to do. But none of it comes close to solving the problem. We're going to need more than fig leaves if we're going to do that. We need something that deals with this sin problem at the root of the broken relationship with God. But what? Well, God does something interesting in verse 21. You might have noticed this. Before God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, He replaces their fig leaves. Did you notice that? He replaces their outfits. In their place, he makes garments for them out of animal skins. And of course, this is a much better solution, does a much better job, but of course, it also would have required the death of an animal. And it's likely this is the first time that Adam and Eve ever saw death. It probably would have been shocking to witness and it possibly would have made them think about what it was going to be like to die themselves. But God was showing them something and God is showing us something that only through death, only through the death of a substitute, can our shameful nakedness ever be truly covered? The animal that died that day became the first picture ever of the ultimate substitute, who is Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, there are major, major problems with our world today, right? There's problems in the realm of nature. There are major problems in the way that we relate to each other as human beings and as nations. The, the brokenness in these areas is absolutely impossible to deny. But at the end of the day, just as we learned last week that all sin is sin against God, this week we're going to see that all the problems in all of our other relationships stem from our broken relationship with God. That's where it comes from. If you need this week the services of, say, an electrician, You don't need to call a Christian electrician. You can call any electrician you want and hope that he does a good job. Maybe you found someone who's very skilled, all right? If you need a a building contractor, you don't have to call a Christian. Find the best one you can find, a doctor even. Now, if you get a Christian, you you may have a better chance of getting an honest person to deal with. I get that. But, But ultimately, it might not matter that much whether your building contractor or your electrician is a Christian. But if you ever go to marriage counseling, If you go to family counseling, if you've got relationship issues, I suggest strongly that you find a believer in Jesus Christ because if this person does not understand that the source of your interpersonal conflict is rooted ultimately in a problem with your relationships with God, then you're likely to get a very superficial solution. At the core of all of our issues is this unresolved problem with sin. We are broken people, all of us, and if someone doesn't solve the sin problem, the rest is just fig leaves. Some of them are going to do better than others for a time, but in the end, they won't do the job. We need a substitute. Now, we know Jesus Christ, it says in Timothy, came into this world to save sinners. 
Jesus Christ, we've been singing about it this morning, came to be that substitute, to die in our place, to purchase our forgiveness on the cross of Calvary. And I pray that if you have not yet put your trust in him, that you will do so today because I don't want you to go into eternity with that broken relationship of God becoming permanent. But let me tell you something. It's for the rest of us too. As great as that is, as great as it is that Jesus solves that problem, He's not stopping there. I don't know if you realize this, but Ephesians chapter 2, it says that on the cross, Jesus tore down the barrier, not just between us and God, but the barrier between different groups of people who previously didn't want anything to do with each other. Romans 8 says that when human beings are completely healed of our sin, nature will also be completely healed of its own curse. See, it starts with the healing of our relationship with God, but it doesn't end there. You see, the kingdom of God, remember last year we talked a lot about the kingdom of God and how, and how it's that, that place where God rules in the lives of his people. But the kingdom of God is not just a place filled with forgiven people. The kingdom of God in its final form is a place with no war, no hunger, no violence, no racism, no poverty, no crime, no cancer, no COVID, no common cold, no police stations, no hospitals, no prisons, no thorns, no thistles, no weeds, no earthquakes, no hurricanes, no mildew, no rust, no loneliness, no crying, no pain, no curse, no darkness, no evil of any kind. That is Jesus' end game. The kingdom of God in its current form, how we experience it today, is a place where people are not perfect, but where God has already done something in those of us who know Christ to transform us at a very deep level in our soul. And so the effects of the curse, while they are not yet reversed, are being counteracted not just with fig leaves that we sew together, but by an all-powerful Holy Spirit that comes in and lives in us and works through us. And so we who belong to Jesus Christ, as we live our lives together in community in the radical love of Jesus, we should be giving all the people around us a pretty good idea of what Jesus' endgame is going to look like. So what about you? Are you forgiven of your sin? Are you restored to a right relationship with the God who made you? If you're not, are you ready to come out of hiding and own up to your own brokenness and run to the cross? Because that's step one. If you're a believer already, do you realize, do you realize, a lot of us don't, do you realize the transformation that is possible in your life now that you are covered by Jesus, now that your shame is taken away, now that there's no need to hide your sins and your hurts and your weaknesses from God or from others or even from yourself? Do you know, Christian, that you do not need to extract your needs from other people, but that you are free to love them expecting nothing in return because Jesus has met your deepest relational needs so now you can meet the needs of others? Do you know that God is preparing you for a future kingdom? Do you know that you have an inheritance in heaven and that this inheritance is, according to 1 Peter, incorruptible and undefiled? Amen. That means your future can't be broken. 
So you are free to live in the present in this broken world with peace and confidence, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain and knowing that there's something so much better on the way. Let's pray.